0: This week's podcast is a muscle masterclass with Dr. Mack. We're talking muscle hypertrophy 101, the concept of keeping the main thing main, training for your muscle type, muscle fiber types, energy system training, what's important in bodybuilding, what's important in other sports. Let's rip in. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast. Bringing you everything you need, want and should know about health, fitness, nutrition and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent or manage any injury, disease or other health related condition. All information provided in the podcast is the opinion of the individual and other contributors and does not represent the policy, procedure or opinion of any other corporate entity or third party. Warning, this body science podcast occasionally contains strong language, which may be unsuitable for children, unusual humour, which may be unsuitable for some adults and advanced science, which may be unsuitable for bro science majors. Stay
1: tuned. The Body Science Podcast is about to start. Burn the fat and feed the muscles with this high protein, low carb, low fat, best tasting daily protein powder. Hydroxy burn lean 5 proteins are released in a sustained chronological order therefore maintaining their different absorption rates, fast and slow, ensuring constant muscle fuel so you stay fit, happy and healthy. This synergistic blend also includes 17 vitamins and minerals, added carnitine, and a proprietary blend of digestive enzymes, DigiZyme and Orafty Prebiotic to aid digestive health.
0: Welcome to Body Science Headquarters. We're here at the home of Fit, Happy, Healthy. I've got my guru in the corner. You hate that word. That's why I said it. Dr. Chris McClellan. Today, he's talking about training for your muscle type. It's a good one. And I'm going to start this off. In the previous podcast, you've gone on about keeping the main thing, the main thing. What are we doing here?
1: I have Greg. So that's you finish my- You finished that
0: protein bar. You're right. Yeah, Just want to swallow that. my uh, yeah.
1: high protein bar, low carb, <laughs> cookies, and uh, cookie dough. One of the yeah. best you'll buy. Yeah, nice. Not one, the best. Anyone yeah. who's on their time-restricted diurnal- you intermittent modified keto with target fasting, (laughs) I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's not a very exciting story, but it's all about keeping the main thing the main thing. I was often asked what my philosophy was around training when I was coming through the ranks as a young strength conditioning coach, and my philosophy was always pretty simple. Turn up on time every time, train hard, go home, eat, go to sleep come back and do it again the next day. I didn't seem to appease the people who were asking me the question. I guess maybe a decade ago, you know, with the evolution of social media and and the the amount of things that you see on social media, and more so with my little segue in recent years into more the, the bodybuilding physique industry, I see a whole lot of people, mainly girls, who are just training in what I consider to be a pretty random fashion to bring about the goals that they want. So if you're in physique, if you're in bodybuilding, and by bodybuilding, we say this all the time, I mean bikini, figure, fitness, all of those, Mm -hmm. all encompassed into physique competition or bodybuilding. It doesn't matter what your 1RM squat is. It doesn't matter what you can deadlift. It's about your ability to develop muscle mass in the right proportions and hence my philosophy is very much about keep the main thing the main thing if you want to be strong then absolutely you have to recruit high automotive units and you need to lift heavy weights above 85% of your 1RM and we've known that for decades if you want to be an endurance athlete you need to train accordingly uh, in endurance manner if you want to develop muscle mass for hypertrophy then it doesn't matter how strong you are right? And there's a justification for lifting heavy, certainly to recruit what we're going to talk about in a minute, a little bit about type one, type two fibers and that sort of thing. But we we know we have the information around fiber type distribution. And that's the other thing we'll get to this in this podcast is around training specificity around fiber type distribution. So based on the research, it's actually pretty old, it's from the seventies around, for example, In a gluteus maximus, in the gluteals, and everyone listening to this will know what that muscle is, what's the fiber-type distribution? Is it predominantly type one, type two? What are we working with? Well, the answer is it's about 50-50. It's probably 55-45, slow-twitch to fast-twitch. So how you train your glutes, the glutes are the easiest muscle in the body to develop. Absolutely, no question. And I think, so how you train them is specific to that. If you want to recruit lower-order motor units, type one fibers, you've got high volume. That's how you train them. Yep. If you want to recruit higher order motor units, type two fibers, Fast which fibers, you've got to train them heavy. So you've got to mix it up. But even then, one RMs and two RMs, you don't need them in your kit bag. You really don't. It doesn't make any difference. So that's the evolution of the, you know, keep the main thing the main thing. Yep. I'm looking at you through this little thing here. And it's the same with crossfitters. And there's definitely a rationale for implementing variation in your training. No question, right? You know, we've talked about this, that we want some variation, but we also need specificity and we need that specificity around our outcome. Otherwise, you're going to diminish your your outcomes your results won't reflect that that's uh, something of a rationale for for our chat today just let's just keep it pretty simple you know if you want to be a crossfitter go and do crossfit but if you want to be a if you want to play in the nfl or the nhl or the nrl or any of those football codes that's not crossfit Yep. You might do an odd CrossFit session for variation. Sounds like a great idea. Why not? But if that's all you do day in, day out, then you're going to be underprepared. That's the philosophy of keeping the main thing, the main thing. Well, do you
0: want to touch more on like what are the muscle fiber types?
1: Sure. The very early work around muscle fiber types and people listening to this will be educated and they'll, they will have heard of fast twitch and slow twitch yep. and red and white and this sort of sort of thing. And we've known that it's, I don't know, I think it's maybe the 1600s. <laughs> it's been around forever. The evolution of that has, has evolved to how we determine it and there's now some very good technology for a very long for decades we've used biopsy which yep. is which is nasty yeah we're literally taking a, a small piece of muscle and analyzing it under a microscope and determining what the fiber type distribution is yep. we've now there's some evolution of measurement techniques has gone on into more non-invasive techniques using mri and, and modified versions of that that's not available to the average person going to the gym It's mm-hmm. cost prohibitive and even access would be limited and same with Biopsies. Biopsies outside of the university sector or outside of elite sport. I mean, you can't just go down to your local uh, QML and, and say, "I want to get a biopsy done." It's not going to happen. We have to refer to the research and the cadaver-based studies from the 70s that mm. that have given us some information around population norms, the distribution of different fiber types, and we they're going to vary. Considerably with individuals. However, that's a starting point for us. In terms of the, the in, like literally with fibre types, we have within muscle, we have small elements of those called myofilaments or fibrils, that, and we have myofilaments. Myo meaning muscle, filament meaning the, the small, call it the contractile part of a muscle. So we have contractile proteins, we have regulatory proteins, and we have what are called structural proteins. The contractile proteins most people will have heard of, that's um, actin and myosin, Mm -hmm. and they're what are called the thick and thin filaments of a muscle. They play a role in the sliding filament theory and excitation-contraction coupling. All that means is that they're the little parts of the muscle that are pulled together and cross over one another to cause a contraction. So there's a stimulus comes through, causes a whole range of changes within the muscle, Within comes down through a T-tubule into what's called the sarcoplasmic reticulum. There's a release of calcium. Calcium changes the orientation of some regulatory proteins that sit on the contractile proteins. One's called troponin, tropomyosin. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with it, but what that does is makes the, the little pieces that contract with one another available, and then literally they pull each other across one another, and the, sh- and the muscle shortens. And that's the contractor. Uh, that's the concentric component of a muscle. And then the reversal of that is the eccentric component. That's nothing new to our audience, and I'm, I'm sure they're familiar with that. Whether or not it's a fast twitch or a slow twitch refers to well. The word twitch refers to the rate at which the contraction occurs. Yep. And that speed of contraction is regulated by an enzyme that's called ATPase, which sits on the head of the myosin contractile element of the of the of the muscle itself. So within that, we've got at, at another level, just for those that are interested in, in this level of understanding of the muscle. In about 1988, there was some new... So when I went to uni, we were, I was always taught it was pretty much just fast and slow, and you couldn't change that. So... so
0: can we change now?
1: Yeah, that, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And as actually the more recent research tells us that there's a huge amount of variation that exists with exposure. And there's been studies done on, mm. uh, on twins where one twin is Become an an athlete, the other twin has become a non athlete, and their fiber type distribution later in life is completely different.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So,
1: yeah, so it's very much exercise and uh, environment dependent. But
0: can we put that reference?
1: uh, Yeah, I'll find it somewhere for sure. With respect to, we have some what we call pure fiber types, is probably an easy way to put it from slow to fast. It has to do with the myosin heavy chain. So, type 1, 2A, and 2X are the three pure types from slow to fast. And then we have hybrids. So, we can have a hybrid of a type, say, a a, a 1 and a 2A. We can have a a 2 and a 2X. So the take-home message is that it's not an all or nothing or a black and white type of scenario. We can have blends of these muscle fiber types within the body. And in fact, a lot of more recent research is telling us that people who are sedentary, who don't do any exercise pretty much, tend to have a higher distribution of these hybrids. They're more generalist muscle fibers. They're not specific for anything. And it could be up to 40% of their fibers are hybrid. Okay. A little bit of both. The more actively, the more highly trained you are, the more specificity you'll have very highly trained athletes may have no hybrids they might have a large distribution of either type one if they're endurance based or they may have you know a substantial amount of type two if they're an explosive athlete 100 meter sprinter Yep. you know whatever so conversion does happen i remember when i went to uni I, we were taught that conversion didn't really happen but it absolutely does we can see two a two x's convert to two a's and it, and it absolutely will and that'll depend on the type of training but there's also a reversibility effect that happens so that's a, there's a use it or lose it situation occurring with muscle as well. So if you don't train, you will perhaps take on more of those hybrid type characteristics and you'll lose the, fast twitch comp- the pure fast twitch or the pure slow twitch components of it. So you think about it, exposure, time and intensity is our, key, our, our two key variables with that approach. you can ask me if they, if you can, how do you grow them? How do you make them develop?
0: I, I was going to ask, like, how does an athlete actually tell and why would they give a shit? But that's probably not relevant.
1: Oh, how can they tell? Like, Well, they can't tell. They can't tell without it, either a biopsy or an MRI. So
0: when you're when you're writing a training program-
1: Yeah. I will base the way I do it anyway, which is probably not like how most people do it, but I know what the fiber type distribution is. Some little
0: secrets are. coming out here? Oh,
1: I don't know. It's not rocket science. It's just that I've gone out of my way to find out what it is. Yep. And it's not something that- you will pick up on in your university degree or you won't get it in your four training, you definitely won't get it in your CERT 4. But the research exists, but you've got to deep fairly dig fairly deeply to, to determine what these fibre types are. It depends a lot on what you're trying to achieve. So if you're looking for hypertrophy, so if we're and we're talking more around muscle fibre type development here than we're talking about endurance training yep. for this approach for muscle fibre type specific training. So if you think about the variables that go into hypertrophy, so hypertrophy is the development of muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Okay. The traditional way that we do that is we manipulate the variables of training so resistance training variables things like the muscle action so concentric or eccentric we talk about the volume or the total workload of a, of a training session we talk about the intensity so the intensity in, in resistance training refers to the amount of load on the bar or a percentage of your maximum capabilities we talk about one rm our one rep max you would be familiar with that term and then we talk about the selection of exercises and that's a bit of a bugbear of mine as well. We'll get to it. Uh, and the order we do them, then we play around with the, the inter-set rest periods because we can have a large amount of impact on the outcomes of a session based on things like metabolic byproducts. So we know that growth hormone adaptations released from the pituitary are stimulated by hydrogen ions, fundamentally. Hydrogen ions coming from metabolic byproduct of muscle contraction, circuits, really fundamentally. So we talk about rep, rep velocity, tempo. So all of it comes down to a specificity around what am I trying to get here? So muscle hypertrophies, as a general comment, less dependent on the strain or the resistance and more dependent on the total volume or the, the, the training workload. Overall, and that we play around with that with uh, you know the number of reps we do, the total volume load, sets times reps times load is one way of doing that, and all of that is is geared towards increasing our cross-sectional area because, like we've said in lots of previous podcasts, the body needs to be encouraged to adapt.
0: So can I ask a dumb question here? Because yeah, you always throw me off track, but yeah, go for it. So the, bo- the body's about adapting. The yeah. training, sorry, the training's about getting the body to adapt. Do I just wake up tomorrow and my muscle type's changed? No. No, so w-
1: what are we talking here? Do you mean duration? Yeah, like e- e- oh, it happens quickly. It does. Yeah, yeah, within okay. within weeks. Yeah, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, within the adaptation weeks. occurs very, very quickly. Again, that's going to depend on whether you train once a week or four yeah, times a week. Got you on that. And I can't give you the exact you know diagnosis there, but the answer is yeah, it, it happens and it happens quickly. It doesn't happen overnight, mm-hmm. but it will happen quickly. Could be a hair commercial. It could be, and I'm <laughs> not surprised that you took it there, but that's okay. That's all about. So you've got to remember, muscle is what's called a post-mitotic tissue, and that means it doesn't. Undergo a large amount of cell replacement during life. We've got to, it's a really dynamic balance between protein synthesis Mm -hmm. and protein degradation. And hypertrophy is mediated by, we've talked about these before as well, called satellite cells. And they reside within what's called the basal lamina and and the sarcolemma, which within the tissue. And so these, what they're called myogenic stem cells, they're normally quiescent. So they're normally asleep, let's just say. They're normally uh, non active. And they become active. When they've got sufficient stimuli to become active, and that comes into a conversation around the vast majority of research now tells us, and there's there's some good work. There's a guy Brad Schoenfeld who did a, a really big meta-analysis a few years ago talking about hypertrophy, and we will attach it to this. And I'm all about recognising you know the research and, and work yep. done by these guys. And Brad's done a great job. One of the things we need is we need metabolic demand, and we need what's called mechanotransduction. You need load. We also need a little bit of microtrauma, a little bit of cell, uh, a little bit of muscle damage as mm-hmm. part of it, and that's. Part of that normal. Remember, I talked about the two little contractile components of the muscle crossing over. Yep. Okay. So as they as they cross and as they revert back, they have to delatch with you know eccentric exercise. Right. We often uh, sore from a lot of eccentric exercise. Okay. Well, the other question is, but a lot of people say, why am I stronger eccentrically than I am concentrically? So that's a question I get all the time. So just to be really clear on what I mean by that, if you're doing a bench press, for example, people will often be able to lower a bar under control that weighs, let's say, I don't know, 80 kilos. They don't have the ability to concentrically push it back up. So they're stronger. I can control that on the way down eccentrically, but I can't push it back up. That means I'm stronger effectively. Really, I'm breaking it down here, but really I'm stronger eccentrically than concentrically. And it comes down to when those little contractile elements cross over one another, they have to be undone. And the delatching process is like uh, they connect on, then there's a a larger amount of energy required to delatch them. And that delatching causes some of the micro trauma that causes post-exercise muscle soreness. Okay. You soar after a workout because of microtrauma. It's got nothing to do with lactate or lactic acid. <laughs> and if anyone's ever still teaching that, please get up and walk out of the room. <laughs> anyway, we have these things called myogenic stem cells. And that, like I said, they're normally quiescent. But when they're stimulated, they become active and they proliferate and then they go and fuse with the existing muscle cells and they donate uh, nuclei effectively. Now that is part of the repair process that occurs post-workout. Mm-hmm. It's that exercise-induced muscle damage that stimulates some of that satellite cell proliferation uh, that, that occurs post-exercise. It's it's a pretty dynamic scenario in terms of what causes that muscle adaptation. And there's two we call talk about autocrine and paracrine adaptations. And that we're getting really deep in the weeds with that. But autocrine very vari- uh, adaptation re- refers to stimulation of protein synthesis, which is the anabolic adaptation. So repair yep. through an increase in anabolic signaling pathways. And a lot of people talk about a thing called mammalian target of rampamycin, mTOR pathway. And for the listeners that are you know, like their um, muscle physiology, they will have heard of the mTOR pathway as the the primary anabolic pathway associated with muscle mass development. The other one is paracrine adaptation. Paracrine adaptation is an increase in satellite cell activation or the proliferation of those myogenic stem cells, and they fuse onto the cells. You with me? Yeah, all the way. So there's a bit going (laughs) on there. And not to lose anybody, but it's a there's a process that occurs there. We need stimuli to bring about muscle adaptation. So mechanical stress is a big one. You've got to train, right? Yep. Uh, it's not going to matter what your diet's like or what you put in your system. You've got to bring about some sort of stimuli to, to induce adaptation. The other one's metabolic stress, as I mentioned, and the other one's uh, muscle damage. There's a few others in there as well with some reactive oxygen species and things like cellular swelling, but we don't really need to go there for this. So the, the metabolic side of it is about things like lactate. It's about hydrogen ions. The whole process of hypoxia is something I'm really interested in. Okay. We probably do a podcast just on that because there's some really cool research coming out about normobaric hypoxia. Think of, I don't know if you've ever done any blood flow restriction training, BFR. Not really. No. So it's called the Katsu Method. It's been around for quite some time, but it's basically occluding, not completely occluding, limiting the blood flow to a limb. In that state of hypoxia, so low oxygen, we get a proliferation of adaptation within the muscle around all those things I mentioned, hydrogen ions, nitric oxide synthase, all these metabolic byproducts that stimulate uh, satellite cell proliferation. And the hydrogen ions also will stimulate the pituitary gland to release growth hormone. We okay. talked about growth hormone before as well. So there's a whole lot of method, um, mechanisms there associated with adaptation post-exercise, which is... I think. And what Pretty type cool.
0: of athletes are you playing in that area with? Everybody. Yeah?
1: Yeah, everybody. Anyone who wants muscle mass adaptation. The beauty of some of the more, ma- well, some of the more mainstream hypoxia training now has great implications into older pops who, because there's a decreased amount of overall load mm-hmm. on, on wear and tear on the joints. But we'll, we'll do another podcast on that another time and we'll probably stick with what we're talking about here. The mechanotransduction side of it is literally mechanical tension, yep. which is another key element. So there's a metabolic component and then there's a mechanotransduction component. So the mechanotransduction is within the sarcolemma around the muscle, we have these, call them mechanosensors, and they convert, I'm being pretty, I'm overviewing a lot of pretty intense physiology here, but they convert mechanical energy into chemical signals that then mediate intracellular anabolic and catabolic pathways. So then mTOR is the big one. Mm-hmm. And the other one's this mitogen activated protein kinase, which is the uh, MAPK pathway. When you get a lot of resistance, right, high resistance lengthening contractions, so strength training, we get an increase in phosphorylation of, of, an, of a what's called a P70SK kinase. It's a, Anyway, it doesn't matter too much, but large amounts of muscle mass, we have a, a larger amount of this phosphorylation of this en, of this enzyme that ultimately has a shift in muscle balance, and that's an autocrine pathway. It stimulates those the fusion of those myogenic stem cells, which is which is pretty cool physiology in terms of muscle mass development and adaptation. But it's also around not just getting large amounts of muscle, but it's also about maintaining muscle. So when people go into a, are trying to lose fat, and we've talked about that in our podcasts all the time, you don't want to sacrifice a lot of muscle. Yeah. So you still need to to have that resistance training component to preserve the muscle mass you've got. That's the perfect scenario. And the older you get, the more important that probably is for maintaining activities of daily living and independence and all the good stuff, reduce risk of falls, you know, recovery from disease. The list of things the, uh, health-related ad, um, benefits to maintaining lean muscle mass. It's a, it's a long list. It's enormous. Okay. Surviving cancer and all sorts of things. <clears throat> I know I'm on a rant. People don't like when I get on a rant all the time.
0: I can't tell the difference between rant and science.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it's a bit of both. When we do high-intensity resistance training, we get a lot of that high mechanical tension, yep. that mechanotransduction. When we do more low-intensity circuits, it's more of the metabolic adaptation. Either way, they both lead to fiber recruitment, a little bit of muscle damage, maybe with the higher intensity work. We get all of those stem cell adaptations. We get some, the byproducts, metabolic byproducts like nitric oxide and so forth will adapt. adapt. We get autocrine and paracrine adaptations. And ultimately, if we get it all right, we lead to hypertrophy and adaptation. Yeah. So that's, uh, what was that? 10 minute overview of what we're talking about. But it all comes down to your key training variables, right? You've got progressive overload, you've got specificity, you've got variation, individualization is huge. That's the one I see a lot on social media and I you know, we've got a forum for people to post what they do in the gym. We see we've got a lot of monkey see monkey do going on in our world whereby someone sees a very elite, very experienced athlete doing an exercise that is far beyond the capabilities of the average gym goer. Naughty hamstring is where you are kneeling down Basically, you keep your torso upright.
0: That's your first problem I'm on my knees.
1: Right. Well, you can be on a padded yep. thing. You need your feet secured or anchored so that you don't tip forward. And then you keep I'm your...
0: seeing that everywhere on Instagram. Yeah, life.
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've got people who are then, yeah, they're tilting forward. If I wanted to tear your hamstring- I'd get you to go and do that now, right? And you see some people doing it, they'll go all the way down and then they'll come all the way back up. Let me tell you, if you can't do a laying leg curl with about double your body weight, you've got no business trying to do that. It looks cool. Mm. I'm seeing uh, some people on Instagram and some good friends of mine are posting things with them doing that. <laughs> and I love them because they're good friends of mine. But I shake my head because I just say there's no way in the world that 95% of the population, even athletic population, even guys I work with at an elite level in AFL, NRL, they can't do that. But if you're a 45 kilo whippet with a huge amount of muscle mass and a background in gymnastics and you've been training your whole life, then maybe, you know, it's not one of those exercises that's, it looks great and it rips into your hamstrings, but there's probably other exercises, well, not probably, there are other exercises that we can implement that are equally as beneficial for develop, developing hamstrings. Mm-hmm. And my little, other little rant in the world of, I guess, that market around females in, who are competing in physique contests, it's normally about glutes and delts. That's what, that's what you need. Yep. Well, Because that's been the case for about a decade, everyone's now got glutes and delts. So ladies, hamstrings are the new glutes, let me tell you, because the girls that are winning at an elite level now have got exceptional glute, we call it glute-hamstring tie-in. They've got separation in their glutes from a posterior perspective, and they've got separation from a quad-hamstring tie-in when they turn on their side. So that's the new, they're the new glutes, they're they're the girls that are going to win. We're going to talk about that because developing hamstrings and developing glutes are two very very different challenges there's some Biomechanical reasons why that is, uh, and some morphological reasons. So morphological with respect to the actual makeup of the muscle and the distribution of the fiber types. Lost you, or are you with me?
0: No, I'm with you on that you're one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm just letting you rant.
1: Yeah. Well, glute training. i because again, I see a lot of girls deadlift, and there's some interesting variations we see on deadlift technique depending on where you've been taught and how you've been taught how to do it. So you got to remember, if you're going to tr- if you're going to train glutes and you want to train hamstrings, you've got to you've got to think from a biomechanics perspective. You've got the pelvis, and you've got the femur. Yep. All right. So you have two different types of mechanisms here. You have pelvis on femur movement, right? So the femur stays fixed yep. and the pelvis moves, right? And then you've got, so think deadlift, right? Then you've got femur movement on the pelvis so the femur moves and the pelvis stays fixed and that's things like reverse hypers and things like that and then you've got an exercise like the nordic hamstring which is effectively femur on tibia right so we're talking distal hamstring now so we've got proximal hamstring with pelvis on femur and then we've got distal hamstring they're very different i guess exercises from a from a mechanics perspective and what i'm seeing is lots of people trying to implement really advanced exercises Actually, what I'm seeing right now is the opposite of that. You know, the bands. Everyone's using the yep. bands and everything. I can tell you how many girls develop world-class physiques with bands. None. How do girls? If you look at the, girls, oh, they might be selling them. If you want to develop world-class, world-class physique, you can't get away from the basics. You got to deadlift. You got to squat. You just, that's just tough. Yep. That's how you do it. If you're thinking pelvis on femur, you're thinking things like Romanian deadlifts, stiff leg deadlifts, good mornings, glute hamstring raises, things like that. If you're thinking pelvis on femur, you're thinking things like reverse hypers, you know, sprinter lunge, things like that. Femur on tibias, is your Nordic, glute hams raises, you know, hip thrusts, yep. things like that as well. You get an element of pelvis on femur with your thrust. Thrusts become hugely popular, of course. Everyone's doing the glute thrusts. You are know, you doing them? They look good. Are you doing them?
0: They look good Please on Instagram. Please tell me I'm not doing them. I'm not doing. No good. that back surgery, mate. It's the last thing I'm doing. Well,
1: Oh. Probably leads into I don't that, think
0: any bull 50 year old man should be got no business so I'm
1: pleased to hear that you're not yeah it, it leads into that conversation around fiber types so we know some we know some stuff and this is down to keeping the main thing the main thing if you want to hit glutes glutes are roughly 50 50 fast twitch slow twitch we've talked we've already mentioned yeah 50 50 50 50 but your bicep femoris, which is the big biarticular muscle means that it uh, it crosses two joints so if you think about your hamstring, bicep femoris, being the main one is about 65 to 70 percent slow twitch mm-hmm. and only about 30 to thirty-five percent fast twitch. whereas your quad, your rectus femoris is going to be the opposite of that.
0: Okay.
1: Your, your quads, so rectus femoris, vastus lateralis, vastus lateralis and even vastus medialis, which are the main, you know, your quadricep muscles are going to be 30, maybe 35, 40 percent slow and maybe 65, 70 percent fast twitch. Okay. So how you hit glutes versus how you hit hammies versus how you hit quads, are very different in terms of your prioritization of exercises and well not just exercises but reps and sets so literally if you want to work glutes you're going to mix it up heavy stuff and higher volume work mm-hmm. if you want to work hamstrings you need to go higher volume they're 60 slow twitch so you need to go higher volume High volume i mean 12s 15s 18 reps and it might only be 65 70 percent of your one rm okay yeah whereas if you want to hit quads you're talking, okay, well, I've only got about 30 or 40% slow twitch. I'm still going to have to squat heavy. And unfortunately, the best exercise for hitting quads is probably still squats. But I don't have to, I've got to go heavy. I don't do. I need, don't need to do a ton of volume. Uh, and then it'll vary. The, the adductors, so adductor magnus, longus, brevis, and those type of muscles, roughly 50-50, maybe a little bit more sort of 60% slow twitch. Your gastrocs, so your calf, your big calf, the big lateral gastroc is about 50-50. But interestingly, soleus or soleus, depending on how you want to pronounce this, is about 85% slow. So high volume for soleus. How do you hit soleus versus gastroc?
0: That's a good question.
1: Know. Easy. So because gastroc is biarticular, you got If you want to take gastrocnemius out of the exercise and work your soleus, which sits underneath the gastroc, bend your knee.
0: Okay.
1: So seated calf raises aren't for your gastroc. They're for soleus and they're high rep. So you don't need to put 18 plates on a seated calf raise. You need to do 20 reps that's pretty much how you do it yeah you, know, you can mix it up pretty considerably around that so you think there's a whole whole different range to that so there's a guy and again we'll recognize the work that you know brett contreras the glute guy has been you know made, done a phd on it i think made an industry out of training glutes he i don't think he claims that he invented the thrust. I hope not. I think he claims to have brought it to the fitness industry and that's cool. There's a couple of different types of thrusts you can do. There's thrusts off a bench, there's thrusts on the floor. Yeah, you can modify that pretty significantly how you, how you want to do it. Hip thrusting, absolutely, it recruits your glute max. No mm-hmm. question, right? And every every mainly girl who's done that will, will agree to it. Yeah. And that's probably most people's go-to. And certainly you will have a larger amount of, you've got about a 300% increase in glute max recruitment from a thrust off a bench than a squat 300 percent. yeah it's pretty big Mm. and that's based based on Contreras's research okay quad wise it's probably comparable but for glutes you'll get a much larger recruitment so if you do a hip thrust off the floor though you'll get a larger amount of hamstring versus glute for that type of movement so even there's an example of just manipulating shift up your thrust and you can hit more glute or more hamstring. Yep. And then there, you can you can put your feet closer together or put them a little bit wider apart, you can recruit a little bit more adductor, Yeah, you know, things like that. Reverse hypers are a really good exercise for um, developing glutes. So reverse hyper is where you would lie, there are machines, but it's effectively where you would put your torso on a bench, keep your legs straight and bring the leg up to do, like a back extension, only your back doesn't move, your legs move. Mm-hmm. If People can Google what a a reverse hyper is. Reverse hyper will give you comparable glute max, glute activation, and hamstrings to a thrust. Okay. So there's a few different things you can do there. Deadlift-wise, much larger amount of hamstrings versus all the other lifts. So if you want to hit your hammies, you've still got a deadlift. That's- and the inconvenient truth of life, and then even within deadlifting variations with Romanian deadlifts, Romanians will will give you about three hundred or four hundred percent more adductor than they will a thrust. If you want to bring your adductors in, and for for total leg development, you need you need to develop your adductors. They're the you know the inside of your leg muscles. Yeah, okay. There's a few different things you can do to manipulate that. Same with back extensions; they're comparable with things like deadlifts, thrusts for hamstrings, mm-hmm. much more so than um, than glutes. What's interesting. Because a lot of people ask me about specificity. Do I need to squat all the way to the floor or can I just do half squats? If you look at the research in terms of recruitment profiles based on EMG, electromyography, so we can measure the electrical activity in the muscles, and that's how we do these. There's not a lot of difference, right? Is that right? Yeah. You can pretty much do a half squat and get... But The problem is that most people say they're doing a half squat, but they're only doing like a quarter squat. You've still got to go to about 90 degrees of knee flexion. Yep. And you'll recruit roughly, it's a little bit different, but roughly the same amount of a quadricep versus going all the way to the bottom of the floor. Okay. So you don't really need to do it. The other one that's a really good exercise for your glutes is a high bench step, but it's got to be high, almost so high that you need someone to help you get up there because it puts you into hip flexion position. So you've got a large amount of gluteal stretch effectively happening, and then you step through onto the bench and you, you recruit your glutes, you know, a fair amount of that. You know, if your priority is is glutes, then you need to really work your, you need a bit of everything is probably the take-home message. And a lot of people are doing that in terms of the, the exercise selection to isolate those. If you just want to concentrate on quads, then you still have to stay with the squats. Okay. You know, you can't you can't get away with it. You don't need to do a hell of a lot of deadlifting if you just want to develop your squats, uh, your quads, and less so on the thrusts as well. And hammies, uh, you know, if your priority is hamstrings, and that's why I just started this chat off by saying that it is for a lot of competitors now, then you've got to deadlift and mix them in with your Romanians, and uh, and you should get good adaptation off the back of it.
0: Sweet. Okay, Dr. Max. so I see people doing these Nordics on the floor versus using the pull-down seat. What's yeah. the best way?
1: Either can be effective. Though, like I said before, there's a fair risk of injury with it. And if so, if you're doing them on the floor and you're kneeling on the floor and someone's holding your feet, what's the worst case scenario? Well, the idea is that you're able to literally relax and fall forward and you can catch yourself with your hands. Yep. So, safety factor. If you're doing it turned around, and for the for the listeners who haven't tried this, and I'm not recommending you do, so you take a pull-down machine that has a seat and a pad for your, well, supposed to be for your thighs, turn around on it, kneel on it, and tuck your heels underneath the pad. That's what you're talking about, yeah? yeah? Then let your torso go forward. The default is that when you have to release, you've got to fall all the way to the floor, so nowhere near as safe would be the comment I would make to you. And I see a lot of people doing these and they're only moving maybe 10, 15 degrees, they're yep. sort of just swaying, you're wasting your time. In terms of bang for your buck, in, the inter- in terms of being able to recruit hamstrings, one of the keys is having a full range of movement, yep. right? And so a little partial active contraction and relax is not really achieving much at all in terms of muscle adaptation. And the hammies are really anatomically, if you think about the hamstrings, they're predisposed to injury, perhaps more so than any other muscle in the body. They are biarticular in nature. When you run or when you are doing any sort of activity, they're involved with hip flexion or hip flexion. During knee extension, you get this concentric contraction with a large amount of lengthening. So you get concurrent hip flexion and knee extension the most common time people ham- tear their hamstrings when they're running, it's, called, it's during terminal swing phase. It's as your foot comes down to the ground and you're extending at the knee yep. and you are flexing at the hip. Sorry, you're extending at the hip. So you're getting pulled proximally, so up near the pelvis area, and distally down at the attachment on the tibia, they're both getting pulled in either direction. So you're trying to slow down the knee and drive your leg down to the floor. Yep. So that's where your hamstrings really comp- compromise. The other thing which is kind of interesting with the hamstring is that it has, you have a we have a long head of our bicep femoris, and we have a short head. So there's effectively, like, a, like your biceps in your arm, there's a long head and a short yep. head, right? So it's the same in your biceps femoris at the back of your leg. So we're talking about the hamstrings. The interesting thing with respect to injury and probably more so rehab with hammy injuries is that the long head and the short head are innervated, by two different nerve branches innovation means it's the nerve supply the long head is innervated by what's called the tibial portion of the sciatic nerve. Most people have heard of the sciatic nerve, yep. whereas the short head is innervated by the common perineal branch. So you've got two power supplies to one muscle. So if you get any sort of desynchronized propagation of action potential, so if the uh, the stimulus to that muscle is compromised in any way, and there's lots of ways that it can be compromised because of injury or muscle activity, there's a lot of reasons why that can be compromised, then you get a desynchronized muscle contraction and increased propensity for injury. And that's really common with rehab. That's why a lot of people tear their hammies within the first three weeks of return to sport because they have this desynchronized innovation to the, to the muscle. And it's because of that dual innovation that is a big factor. The other thing way back at the start of this, I was talking about myofibrils yep. and fascicles. Fascicles, um, the, the short head of uh, the bicep the short head of the bicep femoris has relatively longer fascicles than the long head so fascicle length is is a player in this as well when you have different types of fascicle length we have again potentially a predisposition for injury the short head also has a smaller what we call a physiological cross-sectional area physiological cross-sectional area to break it down refers to the number of Little muscle fibres that are attached onto the tendon. When they're on an angle, say at forty five degrees, you can pack much many, many more fibres onto that onto that tendon yep. versus just if they square on, you won't get as many. So it's anatomical versus physiological cross sectional area. Because it's got a, a smaller physiological cross sectional area and longer fascicles, that's a more troublesome scenario from a loading perspective than if it's got larger physiological cross-sectional area and shorter fascicles, which is fairly complicated, but there'll be people in the audience who know exactly what I'm talking about.
0: So from a him performance perspective in elite sport, are you guys looking at this when
1: when you're signing athletes? Oh, not when you sign him. No? No, because you you won't know that, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, It's a big player in – so actually I've got a a PhD student who – We might get him on here. He's a sports physiotherapist, and Mm -hmm. uh, we might get him on here and talk about it. But we're looking at fascicle length and innovation characteristics in the bicep femoris. Most of the injuries, and there are people who want to debate this, but a, a large number of the injuries are in the proximal tendon of the long head of the bicep femoris, that's right up underneath your gluteal fold, yeah. underneath under your butt, and that's where most people tear their hamstrings. To the haters out there, not every hamstring injury is there, but that's where a lot of them are, right? <laughs> oh man, I get a lot of people who just want to bring the heat, but let me tell you, that's the that's where it's it a podcast. It it's not about the heat. I know it's yeah. not a lecture, right? Yeah. Although it sounds like that sometimes. But there's some stuff when it comes to risk. There are some, and there's some work being done by a guy, by Dave Opar. It was done quite a few years ago now. And again, recognizing that research around alterable and unalterable risk factors. There's some things in life you can't do anything about Mm -hmm. that really increase your risk of hamstring injury. One is your age. And we know that, and it starts early, over 24 years of age, we see an increase in risk for every year of age of around about 1.3 to 1.8 times. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's pretty big, right? The biggest indicator of risk for injury is a previous injury. So if you've torn your hamstring, let's say you tear your hamstring in 2018, you've got 11 times likely hood of injuring it again next year wow it's huge and there's other issues around uh, muscle fiber distribution so whether or not people have a propensity for type 2 type 2x two type 2 a's, type 1s there's a bit of ethnicity around that yeah. around as well with different it's a bit of a unsubstantiated landscape research wise the other one there are some things we can change though that are indicative one is strength imbalances and we know that quadricep hamstring strength ratios that are not particularly great, only sort of 0.5, 0.6, we'll, we'll see an increased risk. So the, the closer that strength profile between your quad and your hammy, the closer that is, the less risk. And, and we've been doing strength or force power profiling in athletes for decades. I listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of people talking about it like it's new, mm-hmm. but we use a thing called a reactive strength index, an RSI, and we can measure the ratio of your force capabilities and your power capabilities. With things like jumping and so forth so you can profile athletes whether they're a force dominant or a power dominant athlete and then you train them a different way so your force dominant athlete will be they might be the person that are doing the heavy sled pushes yep Your power dominant athlete is the one that's got a lighter sled who's flying you know doing high acceleration work the other one's asymmetry so it matters if if your left one is Stuffed, and your right one is good. That's a problem. That'll that'll play havoc with your mechanics, your gait mechanics, your running okay. mechanics. Yep. So it doesn't have to be great. I mean, even again, the research tells us as little as eight percent variation in strength characteristics between your left hamstring and your right hamstring leads to an increased risk. You know, fairly subtle issue. Same with range of movement. If you've got you know, one hamstring that's uh, you've got uh, like for example, with more prominent perhaps with risk for calf injuries. But we look at a thing called knee to wall or dorsiflexion range. So Mm -hmm. you and that's where you bring your toes up towards your shin. So if you've got a remarkable variation between left and right, you've got a higher risk of injury. And that makes sense, right? If one's you can hardly move and the other's got lots of flexibility, then like I said, I think way back in our very first podcast, nothing happens in isolation, right? There's a cause and effect. If you've got really poor range in your left ankle, then your knee's gonna cop it. And your knee's not built to carry it. So then it goes to your hip. Then it ends up into your lower back, into your shoulder, and next thing you know, you get neck pain. So there's lots of things going on there, right? And that happens with post-surgical people when they've been in a boot for a long time. They lose range. Getting that range back is really important. So that that increased risk of injury across the board. So there's there's my little rant. The other one, while we're talking about exercises and rants, is probably my other bugbear, which is bench press technique.
0: We need some music for your bugbears. Like they should just drop the music as it, it comes should, on.
1: Shouldn't it? It should just come in. Yeah. You know, bench press. This is the other thing I see a lot in social media is different technique. And, and I'm not going to rave on about this one. But when it comes to bench press, I don't know how you bench press. How do you you bench press?
0: Oh, not a hell of a lot, mate. I'm no. More functional training these days. Oh, yeah. functional. Yeah, I you love that word on my journey.
1: Yeah, functional training. <laughs> no, well, we don't. We I, don't
0: line up much to bench press, to be honest. My like. only
1: bugbear with functional is people think just because you take a barbell out of it, it's functional. Swinging a kettlebell. How many times a day you got to throw a rope on the floor? Me so personally. So yeah. you come work and do rope slams? That's what I mean. Like how functional is a rope slam? I'm not sure. Right? That's my question. I don't know.
0: That's a good question. Yeah.
1: So how how functional is that? How you... functional is slamming a medicine ball into the floor? Really? Versus some other exercise. I mean, does it help you get out of a chair? True. Any, any more than a squat?
0: No, I think you're right. Because
1: right. people say, I say, well, everyone says, well, it's functional this and it's functional that. And I'm like, tell me what's functional about, yeah, like a rope slam. I don't know what's functional about that. Someone maybe can tell me. Right
0: I normally think about people when I'm doing it. So if you... So it serves a different purpose. Well,
1: fair enough. I mean, if you work in a labor intensive job and you're swinging on the end of a shovel or an ax all day, 100%. Yeah. That's what you want to do. But that's probably the last thing you want to do at the end of the day. I was going to talk about bench press because there's, there's a couple of different types of bench we see. We see the strongman type bench press, which is the huge arch of the back. And and I'm getting into some water here that we people's ears prick because it's pretty contentious. That where people get their feet right up under their bum.
0: You're not a fan of that. You're not, I right. know you're not a fan. No,
1: I'm... Well... I am if you're a powerlifter. Oh, for powerlifting. And this is what the whole crux of this talk is about. Keep the main thing the main thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to get strong, and it's all about load and angle, resistance arm, then that's how you bench, right? That's why powerlifters bench that way. But if you want to recruit pec major, then... That's not how you bench, right? If you want to recruit pec major, and again, don't shoot me, shoot Brett Contreras, because Brett's the dude that's pumping this research out. He calls it a guillotine bench press, but it's a standard bench press with your feet on the floor, your bum on the bench, your back on the bench, your scapula on the bench, and you do your bench press, right? The traditional bench, what I would call a traditional bench press. Irrefutably, the EMG research that's been done tells us if you want to recruit pec major, if you want to recruit... Well, let's keep it a pec major, you do guillotine bench press. You don't do the big arch of the back, you know, powerlifter type bench press. That's a very different one. And and, and again, from a loading perspective with muscle fiber type distribution, again, based on the research of the 70s, and I know that was a long time ago, but human evolution hasn't changed that much fiber types I'm talking about, your pec major is about 60% fast twitch and about 40% slow. Okay. There should be a tendency for heavier lifting in your bench, yep. for your flat bench. Deltoid is probably more, not probably, your deltoid, so sh- at front of your shoulder, for those that aren't up with their anatomy. So for your shoulder press, your dumbbell raises and things like that, probably 55, 60% slow twitch, maybe 40, 45% fast twitch. Mm. So it's more of a volume-based training. You, yep. hit, you hit more volume for your delts. And for every muscle, we've got a fair idea. Biceps is about 50-50. You got to get heavy. You know, if you're going to pick cherries, you're never going to get big, right? So you got to lift something heavy eventually with your biceps as well. Triceps is much more, believe it or not, fast twitch. About seventy percent fast twitch. You got to get out of your comfort zone a little bit with triceps. You know, everything: erector spinae, so longissimus thoracis, iliocostalis lumborum, spinale, thoracis. All of those are about. 55% slow twitch, things like everything, you know, everything has a as a muscle fiber type distribution. Your abs are about 45% slow, about 55% fast. If you want to hit abs, it's not just don't do a thousand sit-ups. You still got to put them under some get some freight yep. and get under a bar or do something. Yeah, you know, it's interesting in terms of, you know, what we know about fiber typing and an exercise selection, which I've talked about, and also the prescription or the programming of the exercises around volume loads. Like I said, if it's slow twitch, it's higher volume, it's 12, 15, 18, 20 reps. If it's fast twitch, it's maybe as low as three reps, four reps, five reps, six reps, up to eight reps, something like that. And that's, that's how you train it. So beauty of it is that you can mix it up quite nicely. And coming back to our conversation, then it's about, well, let's select the exercises. Let's put them in an order. And in terms of the order, there's been a lot of research done around, well, what order should I do things in? Right? Mm. Should you come in and do your bicep curls and then do your pull downs? Well, it depends, right? And there is a technique called pre-exhaustion, which you would be familiar with, where, for example, I, I can't squat, right? I've had full shoulder reconstructions. I can't get a bar on my back, but I can do a safety bar <coughs> squat and I can yep. front squat. So I'll often pre-exhaust my quads by doing leg extensions. Which is an isolation exercise, yep. but for me, I can't squat five plates a side anymore because I can't hold onto it anymore. It's pretty hard to front squat five plates a side. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, fairly, fairly intense. I Did imagine. you try? I don't think I've ever tried that. Okay. No. So I'll do, I do my leg extensions first, and it serves as a bit of a warm up. Blows out my quads, gets a heap of blood into my quads, and then I'll go and do my front squats or my safety squat or yep. whatever it might be. But traditionally, and there's been a lot of research around this, you do from a total workload perspective. And from a recruitment perspective, the recommendations are our compound movements. So our big, so your squats, your deadlifts, things like that, you do doing first early in the workout. Two reasons. You're neurally, from a neuro perspective, you are fresh. So there's no pre-exhaustion taking place. Yep. So from a neural perspective, the ability to recruit higher-order motor units. And when I say higher-order motor units, I mean your type 2 fibers, fast twitch, You want to get them going, and we've already said, depending on what you're trying to do, depending on the muscle type, you need to. It's a reasonable strategy, and to to train those earlier. If you particularly want to really develop you know, if your biceps are really a weak point, then you want to train them early. Do them first, if, if that's what your weak point is. So, you know, there's lots of ways we can play around with it. And we'll do some other podcasts on some other topics. But I, in terms of how I do programming, and we could probably talk about that. Is So we, we think about fiber type distribution. We think fundamentally around goal. Then we talk about, well, are there any limitations to what we can do in terms of exercises? Has the person had four shoulder recos? I've had two on each side, which is makes it challenging. Or whatever else. You've had stuff happen, you know, surgery yep. back and so forth and then let's identify what the objective is, if it's hypertrophy, if it's strength, and then let's, let's dial in the repetition range and the loading according to that, put him in an order so that you know, I'm going to get my best bang for my buck. I'm going to do my big stuff first. I'm going to deadlift early. I'm going to do my Romanians, things like that. Depends what I want to do. So you should ask, uh, you know, you want to be asking your trainer. Well, not exactly those, but you want to be asking them, okay, you know, I want to, I want to develop my glutes. We've already said that, you know, the glutes are important for physique competition, particularly in females. I already said the hammies are the new glutes. That presents some challenges because it is biarticular.
0: Sounds like a t-shirt. What's that? Hammies are the new glutes. Hammies
1: are the new glutes. Well, Maybe. I mean, I think it is from a competitive perspective. You know, what are you going to do and, and how are you going to do it? There are, There's probably some okay. exercises that are more specific. That's actually
0: a good question, how are you going to do it? What are your top five exercises for glute? Let's go. Number one.
1: Oh, well, you've got a thrust, right? I would do both the different types of thrust. So I would do the thrust from a bench. Number one. Yep. you thrust from the floor. Number two. That's probably two. You've got actually an exercise that is pretty good. Well, your reverse hyper has yep. to be in there. There's probably your third glute bridges as opposed to your thrusts. A little bit, uh, a little bit of a variation on that. I think number four. Yeah, probably four. And then there's an exercise that I've never been a fan of, but the EMG data is is supportive of it. I said Romanian deadlifts, not, yep. is you see people doing it on a cable pull-through. I don't really like them. very. I like high high box step-ups, yep. probably number five in terms of your go-tos for your glutes. You, you can you can rip into them quite nicely. And it doesn't mean you do every one of those every workout, right? Yeah. It means you mix it up. Anyone who's worked with me knows that I like reverse pyramids in terms of my loading. My philosophy is always heavy set, first set. We come in, we do our warm-up, and then if I'm trying to get strong, this is. If you want to get strong, then I want to lift. Once I'm warm, and and that might take four or five sets, I'm also an advocate of warming up with whatever it is I'm about to do. That means if I'm going to bench, I'm going to warm up on a bench. I'm not going to grab a two-kilo dumbbell and do some – silly little wave my arms in the air and convince myself I'm recruiting supraspinatus or infraspinatus. You know what I'm talking
0: about? I've seen you in the gym, yeah.
1: Yeah, warm-up specificity as much as exercise specificity and then throw some freight on the bar and get underneath it. That's my philosophy, and then drop the, and you might do eight, whatever it is, six or eight, and then if you've done that properly, then you can drop the load a little bit by five percent, ten percent, do your next set, and you'll get the same reps out, and then your next set will be a five, a five or ten percent drop on that, do your next set. So you still get, your, you still meet your volume requirement, mm-hmm. and, you, and you're meeting your intensity requirement. Other than ascending sets is where you do, yep. you know, you go the other way, and by the time you're on your fifth set, you've already done four sets, and you're exhausted, and you're trying to lift your heaviest weight. Yeah, it defeats the purpose, right?
0: Makes sense. Yeah, you play
1: around with that. That's my thing. And yeah, compound exercises ahead of isolation, it's a given.
0: Okay, so we've done top five glute. Yeah, now we're doing top What's five. What's a top five hammy? Top five hammy.
1: Yeah, mate. Do you have a top five
0: hammy? Me personally? Yeah. No, mate, I'm asking you, oh. you're the doctor.
1: No, that's okay. Hamstrings-wise, deadlift and deadlift variations. Traditional deadlift, Romanian deadlift, so one and two, probably yep. uh, dead and Romanian. The other one would be a back extension so you can you can work a bit more hamstring on your back extension type yep. movements. It depends a lot on what you're trying to do but there is nothing wrong with doing your traditional hamstring curl. For people who you're still going to recruit hamstring, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's no there's no reason why you can't do that. They're probably the main go-tos for your for your hammies.
0: I think that was only four, wasn't it?
1: Uh, yeah. Well, th- you can throw in whatever you like. You can do a single leg sort of a single leg bridge. Yep. You'll get a fair bit of hamstring with that. Okay. So you know what a bridge is? I Your foot-ups on the bench? Yeah, okay. So single leg bridges work pretty well. Bent knee bridges, loaded with a band, mix it up a little bit. So the band's okay now? No, no, I'm talking resistance band. Oh. I'm not talking the band that you put around your knees. I'm talking the resistance bands that you wrap around the bar, not around your body. Two different bands. Yeah. Yeah, good. I'm a big fan of the resistance band, less of a fan of the other band. Yes. And people will want to shoot me. And hopefully people will still listen to this podcast after that because they're very popular.
0: Okay, if we're chucking some freebies in from a man who's done 14 years of study, we may as well throw quads in there as well for well, top quads.
1: Well, you know, if you're going to train quads, you've got a squat, right? That's pretty much the story of you life. You said that
0: before, yeah. Mm. So
1: so I would do, do your barbell squat. You can do your front squat. Two squats, yep. Yeah. I actually advocate for athletic populations that they don't go very deep. They just go to – they do their half squat. And even for some populations, they just do quarters. So if you're really explosive – so your NRL guys, they don't have to squat to the floor. There's no reason in the world. They're probably the main uh, – there's only three. for quads?
0: Yeah. yeah you, you, five. We promise five.
1: They're probably your go-tos. You can still get an element of, although I, for guys I wouldn't get them to thrust just on principle, yep. but you can get some of that with some of the movements there. Hip flexion type movements, anything like that will work okay. pretty well for your quads. Yeah, I like... Oh, you know, leg press, nothing wrong with that. Move around your feet. I like, it depends what equipment you've got available to you, but there are some really good squat machines. Mm-hmm. I like safety squats, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the safety bar. Front squats, I'm a big fan of front squats. Sumos. I'm not. Yeah, you know, single leg variations on that. Okay. Uh, nice. are a good option. Hack squats. Although, turn around the other way and do your hack squat in reverse would be my recommendation. They're probably your go-tos for that sort of thing. And get some volume in. So, if you want to develop muscle mass, I think people dramatically undertrain. You've got to do, and people won't probably like this, but you've got to probably do. 15, 16, 18 sets per body part, sorry, per body body part, part, not per exercise. So that might be- 18 by five. No, that's just four exercises with four sets. There's your 16 sets, right? It's not that hard to do. And you can do that with drop sets and supersets and all that sort of stuff, compound stuff. There's probably a podcast around terminology there with regard to giant sets and supersets and push-pull options and-
0: Not a bad idea, actually.
1: Yeah. So there's a few things you can do. So, mate,
0: can we drop a little top five- Concept at the bottom of this podcast for people to have a look at. Yeah, yeah, for
1: sure. And I think you just mix it up. A lot of a lot of girls, particularly, are hitting legs four times a week. Which How many? Four, four times. I know, I know lots of girls competing in physique comps hitting their legs four times a week. Mm. Minimum three. I, I would just be saying to them, you've got to mix it up. So what I would do in that scenario, if I'm going to hit legs three times a week and I need to develop everything, then I would give a prioritization to whatever part of like if you if you want to work on glute, quad, and hammy. And you're training legs three times a week, which is what a lot of people are doing. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would go Monday's a glute day. I would lead off with my glute exercise. I probably do two really some pretty, like your thrusts and, and those sort of movements early on. Get some get some load in there. And then it might be only a couple of, couple of exercises on quad and a couple of exercises on hammy. You're not there all day, but you'd still satisfy your volume loading. So it might be prioritizations on glutes. So let's get our 16 sets of glutes. Then let's do whatever it might be. It might only be eight sets of quads or whatever it might be, and there might only be eight sets of hammies. Mm-hmm. Then you come in on the if – if I do glutes on Monday, I would do quad on Wednesday, and then I would do it the other way around. First couple of exercises are going to be quads – followed up by hammy, followed up by glute. So whatever you do first is your prioritization. Whatever you do last is going to be stuffed, fatigued, cooked. Yep. Right. And then on the Friday, it's hammy dominant day. So I come in, I'll hit my hammies early, do the hammies first, followed by glute, followed by quad. So everything has had add an opportunity to be first, second, and third over your week. And then you pick your exercises load up your volumes and you're in good shape and then if you're training the other days you you would do the rest of the you know your chest and your delts and your arms and your back on the other days. so you you might do a chest and arms on a tuesday you might do your 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 back and something else on the thursday and saturday might be your wrap-up day you might do a full body circuit there's a heap of things you can do that's what i would do around prioritization of uh muscle groups rather than come in and hit glutes first every day then every something else is going to lack so whatever you it's going to be you might still say, well, I'm still training my quads every day, but I'm doing them last. Mm. You're not going to get the adaptation that you would get if you put them first. And you might mix that up a little bit where glutes are first on two of those days, depending on what you need. And that, that's how you, that's how I would do it. Nice. Pretty simple.
0: Well, that's been a big podcast, mate. Thanks for that. Easy. Bodyscience.com. Get the main thing the main thing. Exactly. Hey? Bodyscience.com.au forward slash podcast to grab those notes, download those top five tips, grab those research papers we mentioned on the way through. Enjoy. Awesome. This podcast was brought to you by one of our favorite products, Hydroxyburn Lean 5, available at ASN nationally, Sporties, DY discount vitamins, Fat burners only, Evelyn Fay and rockhard supplements.